Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the One Life Ronald Reagan exhibit here at the National Portrait Gallery. My name is Anjali Singh, and I work for the American Film Institute up at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I was asked to come here today to speak a little bit about Ronald Reagan, the actor. Now, most people, of course, when they hear the name Ronald Reagan, automatically think of Reagan, the president, and maybe even Reagan, the governor of California. But very few people immediately associate him with the golden years of Hollywood. And it can be argued that ultimately it was Reagan's career in Hollywood and his time out um, you know, acting in the studio system that ultimately paved the way for him to become the effective politician that he eventually did and, of course, become the president of the United States. Now, in particular, I'm also going to talk about this um, lobby card here. This is actually a photograph of a lobby card for Reagan's 1942 film, King's Row, which is considered by most critics to be the greatest film that Reagan was ever in. But I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. I'm going to start just talking about how Reagan got his start in acting. And then once I make my way up to 1942, I'll discuss the lobby card a little bit more. So how exactly did Reagan become interested in acting? Well, it really all started with his mother, Nell Reagan. Now, Nell had two main passions in life. One of them was her faith and working with her church to better her community. And the second was acting. And she was actually a member of an acting troupe in Tampica, Illinois, where Reagan um, was eventually born. And uh, his father actually also acted in the same acting troupe. And Nell was really influential and really um, instilling a love of acting and a respect for the acting profession in her younger son. Now, Reagan continued on with the family tradition. Um, in high school, he became president of the Dramatics Club, and even in college, he continued to act um, and gained a relatively modest reputation as an actor among his fellow classmates at Eureka College. Now, when Reagan graduated from Eureka College in 1932, he was actually interested in pursuing acting full-time. That had always been his main interest, and that really was what he wanted to do. But of course, at the time, for you know, a relatively young kid from the Midwest, in the middle of the Great Depression, the idea of going from the Midwest to Hollywood and becoming a major superstar was a little bit far-fetched. So he decided to go with what he considered to be the next best thing, which was radio. Now, I'm not going to talk too much in depth about his radio career, just because it is covered <laughs> elsewhere in the exhibit, but Reagan worked for two relatively small radio stations in Iowa, um, and because the stations were relatively small, he actually, he was in charge of sports, um, sports announcing. Um, since the stations were small, he actually received all of the details about the games that he was announcing from telegrams. Um, the stations couldn't pay for him to actually go to the main cities to see the games firsthand. And so what he did was he would get a telegram that maybe would say, you know, first pitch was a strike or something like that. And then from there, he would really fill in all of the details. He would describe what the players were doing, maybe what the, um, the people in the stands were doing, the weather. So he really was able to perfect his storytelling skills during his career in radio. Radio was also essential for Reagan in that he met a very important person while he was working as a sports announcer, and that person's name was Joy Hodges. Now, Joy Hodges was a contract player for Warner Brothers at the time. She was originally from Iowa, so she was coming back um, as kind of a part of a little maybe publicity tour, um, and she was on the air with Reagan. She did a little talk on the air. They got along really well. They were very friendly. And then that was pretty much it. Joy went back to Los Angeles, and then Reagan stayed on and was perfecting his radio skills. Now, in 1937, Reagan got his big break. 
he was actually invited to accompany the Chicago Cubs to their spring training, which was located at that time on Catalina Island. Now, Reagan was thrilled about this. He had never been out of California, um, and he was thrilled to be able to actually meet the players that he had been talking about on the radio for all those years that he had never had a chance to know. And of course, it wasn't lost on him that Catalina Island is located right off the coast of Southern California, and therefore was right near Hollywood. So Reagan did have some ulterior motives in making the decision to go. So Reagan um, went ahead and took the train out to California. He was only 26 at the time, so he's a very young man. And while he was out there, he had some free time, and so he met up with Joy Hodges, who, of course, he had kept in touch with. So he met with her for dinner, um, and he told her that you know, what he really wanted to do was be an actor. That was his goal. And Joy liked Reagan. You know, she thought he was a good-looking man. She could see him you know, in motion pictures. And so she actually told her agent about him. Her agent's name was George Ward. And Ward got in touch with Reagan and actually set up a screen test for him at Warner Brothers. So Reagan went in, did the screen test. Everything went really well. Um, and then he went back to Catalina Island to continue with his radio job. Well, the Chicago Cubs weren't that happy that he had seemingly shirked his duties and was out playing around in Hollywood when he was supposed to be there working with them. So they actually dismissed him. So he got back on a train and was on his way back to Iowa when he got a telegram from George Ward saying that Warner Brothers had offered him a seven-year contract at $200 a week. And this was the standard, <laughs> and this was the standard contract for Warner Brothers at the time. So now, Hollywood in the 30s and 40s was very different than it is today. Today, it seems like pretty much anyone can just pick up a camera and make a movie. But at that time, the studios really controlled everything. They controlled the film process from the initial story development through distribution and exhibition. And they actually owned the theaters that they showed their films in. So they had a monopoly over that whole process. Um, now, Reagan's position in the studio system as a contract player would have been, of course, very much controlled by the studio. The contract players were considered to be employees of the studio. They really didn't have any control over the roles that they were given. They'd often be acting in more than one film at a time. Um, and the publicity departments at the studios had a lot of power over both the actors' professional lives as well as their personal lives. Um, so, you know, Reagan might be told, oh, go take this actress out to dinner, and he would, and they would take all the pictures, and they would be like the next big item. So the studio system, and uh, specifically the publicity departments, really did play a major role in um, defining him as an actor. Um, Warner Brothers itself, well, at this time, each of the studios was very individualized. They each had their own personality. And this personality can be seen on the films themselves. Each of them had a visual style that was really um, impressed into each film. So Warner Brothers um, was an interesting studio in that they specialized in social realism pictures. So they were interested in films that tackled social and political issues of the time. Their films tended to have a bit of a gritty quality, a very real quality to them. Uh, for example, they're the ones that really created the gangster genre as we know it today. So that kind of gives you a sense of the type of picture they were making. Now, the actual Brothers Warner, the people who formed Warner Brothers, Harry, Sam, Jack, and Albert, were also very politically minded. They had actually been born in Poland, and they emigrated with their families to the United States when they were very young to escape the anti-Semitism that was starting to become more prevalent in that area at the time. So they were very much interested and aware of what was going on in different parts of the world because it directly impacted them. Um, now, it's interesting to think that 
our future president came out of Warner Brothers rather than, say, another studio like MGM, which usually had the very kind of glossy, picture-perfect movies. The fact that Warner Brothers was so steeped in politics possibly had an impact on Reagan. Now, when he first started, there's really no evidence that he was interested in politics. He was more interested in his career and dating the young starlets on the lot. Um, but it's still, you know, it's interesting to think of what sort of impact that had. And Jack Warner was actually a mentor of Reagan's. So maybe some of that political, um, those political leanings rubbed off on him. So going back to Reagan. So we left Reagan in California. He's all excited. He got a studio contract. Now, Reagan was extremely lucky as an actor. And he knew that. He recognized that. Most contract players, when they got to Hollywood, just kind of languished there for weeks, maybe months, before they even got their first bit role. Reagan moved out to Hollywood, and within three days of the start of his contract, he got the lead in a motion picture. So he was extremely lucky. That's very, very rare. So Reagan's first movie was called Love is on the Air from 1937. And ironically, he plays a radio announcer. So he fit this role perfectly. Um, and actually, it was kind of a good role to kind of um, introduce him to the way the studio worked, because he already had that character, um, character down, essentially. Um, now, Love is on the Air wasn't a blockbuster or anything. It was a B film. So at the time, studios made two types of films. There were A films and B films. A films were the ones the studios felt had greater box office potential. They're usually the ones that had the major stars. Um, and they're the ones that people you know, in the public would actually want to go see. Those were the draws. The B films were usually made very, very quickly. They had lower budgets. Um, the scripts, because they were pushed through the system so quickly, weren't the best, typically. Um, so a lot of people say, you know, the acting in B films wasn't the best. It's more that the story wasn't the best, because Reagan actually did do a fairly effective job in his films. Um, but Reagan did stay mostly in the B unit of Warner Brothers. Um, the few A films he made, he played kind of the best friend or a, more of a supporting character rather than a lead. Um, now, Reagan was, even though uh, Love is on the Air wasn't a huge blockbuster, he was still very enthusiastic about the opportunity, and he did get really good reviews for his personal performance in the paper. And he had a great personality in general. He made friends with all the crew members, all of the actors on the lot. He was very likable. And in particular, he became good friends with Pat O'Brien, who was one of Warner Brothers' major stars at the time. And actually, you'll see a picture of him, the big face over there in the Newt Rockney All-American poster. Um, now, Pat Bryan really liked Ronald Reagan, and so in 1940, when the film Newt Rockney, All-American, was made, Reagan really, really wanted the role. He wanted the opportunity to work with Pat O'Brien, and plus he had always really idolized George Gipp, and he had played football in college, so this was, he thought, right down his alley. And Newt Rockney turned out to be his big break. This was ultimately the film role that got him the attention of the public and really made people look at him as a serious actor. So, of course, as I said, he played the role of George Gipp, who was a young college athlete, a football player, who unfortunately met a tragic and untimely end. Um, and this, of course, is the film where the line, you know, win one for the Gipper comes from. Now, Reagan had less than 15 minutes of screen time in the film, but he was really lauded as one of the shining moments 
in the movie, and he actually did a terrific job for his role. And he fought very hard for that role. He really wanted it. And the story goes that when he finally was able to get a screen test for the role, the producer said, well, you don't look athletic enough. That was their excuse. So of course, Reagan, who had played football in college, went on home and brought in a picture of himself in his uh, football uniform. And that ultimately is what won the producers over. Oh, can I interject? Sure. Uh, there's a better episode of that. Uh, Ronald Reagan didn't get the role because he wasn't a big strapping guy. So we called his friend Pat O'Brien up. Pat O'Brien was the one <laughs> yeah. that knew Okay. Um, and the role of George Gipp was considered by Reagan to be his favorite film role of his entire career. And the film itself was actually um, inducted into the National Film Registry in 1997, and it was deemed a film culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So due to the success of Newt Rockney, uh, Ronald Reagan was promoted to star status by Warner Brothers in 1941. So he was no longer just a contract player. He was considered a star of the studio. Um, to give you a sense of how popular he was at the time, he started receiving tons of fan mail. His fan mail was second only to that of Errol Flynn. And when you consider that most of Errol Flynn's fan mail was marriage proposals from women, it really gives you a sense of how popular Reagan was at the time. Um, and actually, in 1942, he tied Laurence Olivier at number 74 on Gallup's Top 100 Stars list. So he was quite popular. You know, most people think, oh, he was just some little-known actor. He was never, you know, ever in anything important or big. But actually, he was quite popular at the time. Okay, so 1942. 1942 is a huge year for Reagan because this is when King's Row comes out. And King's Row, as I said before, is, contains what is considered by many critics to be um, Reagan's greatest film and probably performance as well. Now, King's Row is about two friends growing up in a small town. Uh, Paris Mitchell, played by Robert Cummings, is over here. And Drake McHugh, played by Ronald Reagan, is here. Um, so it's about these two friends growing up in a seemingly all-American town, but then as the film goes on, we realize this town has a very dark underbelly, and there's a lot of psychological overtones, which again was very popular in films of this time period. Now, the most famous scene in King's Row is the one in which Reagan's character wakes up to find that both of his legs have been amputated. And at this moment, um, Drake McHugh yells out, where's the rest of me? And of course, that line, as some of you may know, um, became the name of one of Reagan's autobiographies later on in his life. Now, this line was very important to Reagan, and he was very nervous about delivering it correctly because he knew that this was probably his key moment in the film. So Reagan actually went out of his way to do research on this line. He talked to doctors, psychologists. He actually talked to people who had had limbs amputated to get a sense of the emotion that would go into this line. And he practiced in front of the mirror. He was very nervous about doing this scene. And so on the day when they actually shot the scene, um, Reagan actually nailed it on the first take. So what you see in the film was the product of all of Reagan's hard work that went into that one line. Now, in terms of lobby cards, lobby cards were the smallest form of promotional material that studios made at the time. And so this would have been made by Warner Brothers. And the studios would distribute these lobby cards to the theaters that would be showing the film to generate interest um, in the upcoming, uh, the upcoming pictures. Now, this photograph here is slightly enlarged. Um, the original lobby card would have been 11 inches by 14. That was the standard size. And most of them are in this horizontal format with this kind of border design around the edge. 
And lobby cards typically came in sets of eight. There was a title card and seven scene cards. And a title card looks essentially like the poster for a film. It would have had images of all the actors, their names, um, the title of the film, production credits, maybe a tagline. So it would have looked like what we think a normal movie poster looks like today. This is an example of a scene card. Scene cards, as the name suggests, depicted certain scenes in the film. So the scene depicted here is the one um, in which uh, Drake McHugh, or sorry, uh, Paris Mitchell tells Drake McHugh that there's a possibility that his legs did not need to be amputated, that it could have been done out of spite by the doctor. So this is a very climactic, tension-filled scene, which you can see here just the way the characters are standing, the direct eye contact. Um, so it makes for a very engaging image for the people who are going into the theaters. And the colors are also extremely bright. So this, together with the colors and the content of the scene, would have been a great piece of marketing material for the studio to have given um, to theaters at the time. Now, King's Row was a huge success. And after King's Row, Reagan was able to renegotiate his contract with Warner Brothers. And he was actually able to sign a $1 million contract with Warner Brothers. So he was really on the top, you know, top of the world at this time. Um, there were talks of an Oscar nomination for him for this role. So he was doing terrific. And then, of course, World War II started for America. And Reagan had to report for active duty in April of 1942. He had very poor eyesight, and so eventually he was transferred to the first motion picture unit, which was based out of Culver City. So he actually never went overseas to fight during World War II. He stayed in the Los Angeles area the entire time. And as a member of the first motion picture unit, Reagan narrated and even acted in some of the recruitment and training films that they were making for the different branches of the military. Um, now, Reagan... It was funny because um, the publicity department is always, even though Reagan was kind of out of the studio at the time and was in the military, was very conscious of maintaining his image that he had created for himself in King's Row. And so whenever he was out, they made sure he was always photographed in full military uniform so that people would get the idea that he was a soldier, a patriot. Um, so that was something that, you know, Reagan, he was still involved in the studio system in some way, even though he was in the military. Now, when Reagan got out of the military, he had some difficulty getting back into film roles. You know, he was no longer the young matinee idol he had been. He was middle-aged. Um, a lot of young actors had kind of come into the studio system while he was away and kind of taken his place and formed their own reputations. So he, unfortunately, was not able to really resurrect the career high that he had in 1942 with King's Row. So even though his film career wasn't going the best, he became more active in the Screen Actors Guild. Now, Reagan had been a member of the Guild since 1937 when he started his career, and he actually went on to become, um, to hold seven terms as president of the Guild, six of which he was elected to by membership, and five of which were consecutive terms. Um, so he was very, very much involved with SAG, and through his involvement with SAG and other similar organizations of the time, he was really able to gain a lot of the skills that would eventually become crucial to him becoming a successful politician. He developed um, great leadership skills, great negotiation skills. He proved that he was a fantastic public speaker. And by the end um, of his time with SAG, he really became one of the foremost spokesmen for the film industry as a whole. Now, in 1954, when Reagan was still working um, with SAG as the, as the president, he became host of General Electric Theater, which was a very popular television show at the time. Now, Reagan had been hesitant about going into television. He was afraid that by accepting television roles, he would ultimately 
kind of sacrifice his film career. And ultimately, he was still focused on film, even though it was becoming obvious that the film career was not going to get back to where it had been earlier. Um, so eventually, he accepted the role. So he was the host of General Electric Theater, and he also acted in some of the segments. So just to give you an idea, General Electric Theater was set up very similar to the way the Twilight Zone was set up, where it had a little intro in the beginning, and then it had a narrative. Um, so Reagan was the Rod Serling of General Electric Theater, and then would occasionally act as well. Now, as part of his work with General Electric, Reagan was also required to make tours of the country and the different GE facilities and give little talks promoting what GE stands for as a company. Now, Reagan eventually started, instead of just promoting GE, he started talking more about his own politics on these tours. And eventually, in 1962, GE had to let him go because he was becoming a liability, because he was essentially just talking about his own politics and his stance on things, which wasn't the best for the company. So in 62, he left General Electric Theater, and 62 was actually when he changed his political affiliation from Democrat to Republican. So that was an important year for him. Now, The Killers in 1964 was the last film Reagan made. And after that, he really turned full-time to politics. And of course, the rest after that is history. Now, Reagan achieved a great deal as an actor. He was in over 50 feature films. And that doesn't even include all the shorts he did for the military. But 50 features, he worked with some of the greatest actors who ever lived, including Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, Errol Flynn, and Olivia de Havilland. And he was really instrumental in changing the way the public viewed the acting in the film community. You know, once he became a successful politician, people obviously knew his background was in acting, and so they started looking a little more favorably on actors and the film industry. So he kind of helped to um, change the way that was viewed in the public. Now, ultimately, the persona that Warner Brothers created for Reagan, that of the you know, all-American, courageous, athletic, um, you know, champion of the underdog, that kind of a person, those were ultimately the terms that followed him into his political career. Um, and a lot of times when people hear those words, they still associate it with Reagan the politician. Um, so it's interesting to note that ultimately it was Warner Brothers and their publicity department in the crafting of his image that ultimately kind of carried him onto the presidency as a candidate that people could really identify with. All right. Any questions? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.